Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. Hi, Tom. Jay, it's good to be doing it again. How are you? Doing well. Um, Let's think about these interesting times we're in right now. Uh, we're recording on March 12th and market's tanking again. Um, yesterday, the Legal Marketing Association announced the suspension of the annual conference they were gonna be holding and law firm offices closing, law schools uh, sending students home. So the coronavirus has, uh, or I guess COVID-19 as it's now being called, is, is definitely having an impact. And I, I was thinking, it's, it's interesting, and I'm curious your take on this, Tom, but it's been a while since there's been a singular topic that has dominated thought leadership content uh, to the extent that this has. It's it I can't remember a time probably back to the financial crisis. Um, so I mean I think it's a good time to you know in our in our little niche issue. Obviously, there's much bigger and more important issues um, that relate to this virus out there. Um, but when we think about you know law firm marketing and and attorneys building a practice, it's a good reminder to say you know, now would be a time where, um, you know, you can't necessarily get in front of people or do traditional networking to maybe double down on your thought leadership marketing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that immediately came to mind when you said the last time, I I skipped over the financial crisis, so you're probably right, but I thought all the way back to Y2K when it just seemed like there was this urgency in worldwide, um, you know, panic even really is the, the, the pending clock, you know, was, was ticking. So yeah, to your point, I agree. Is this is something that we've, has, has evolved naturally because of, I think the mo- modern, just the modern landscape where people are pressed for time, they're compressing more activity into seemingly smaller windows. And we're finding, you know, put coronavirus aside, um, you know, people are taking fewer lunches, fewer meetings. And um, so you know, doing thought leadership marketing, as we've talked about, and doing thought leadership content is something that can be done remotely. It can be done in smaller time windows. And certainly when something like this presents, you know, an even more imminent and important, um, you know, constriction on our time and our mobility, then yeah, for sure, this is something people should be thinking about and, and working into their plans. Yeah. And we always say, you know, you can't be everywhere all at once. And that's particularly true these days, you know, in person meeting with people, but your ideas can scale. And so I think that's, that's the reason why to be thinking about, you know, to continue to market your practice, um, producing thought leadership is, is uh, one way to do it. And to help our listeners do that more effectively, we've got a, a guest today that's a uh, prolific thought leader, and we're excited to uh, speak to him. Uh, Frank Ramos is the managing partner of Clark Silvergate, where he practices in the areas of commercial litigation, drug and medical device, products, and catastrophic personal injury. He's AV rated and is listed in Best Lawyers in America for his defense work in product liability matters. He starts his 21st year at Clark Silvergate and his 22nd year of, uh, in the practice of law. He's tried personal injury, medical malpractice, product liability, 1983 and inverse con- condemnation cases to verdict and has spoken and written extensively on trial skills. Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so we're, we're going to talk uh, a lot about uh, different aspects of, of thought leadership marketing with you. And, and I'm going to start uh, 
asking you uh, a question, just kind of a little bit of a broader question, maybe a process question. Um, I, f I follow you on LinkedIn um, and I've, you know, checked out your profile. You, you are prolific on that platform um, and you're prolific in, in other areas of thought leadership as well. You've written 10 books, you've written over 400 articles. Maybe those numbers are even higher now, uh, but that's the, that's the latest statistics I could find. Um, most lawyers that I coach or consult with suggest oftentimes when I suggest to them that they should be doing more thought leadership marketing, that they simply don't have the time to write or produce content. What's your secret to getting more done? I think we have more time than we realize, especially if we have a long commute to and from work. There are a number of apps that individuals can use, certainly voice recognition apps and uh, recording apps where you can kind of dictate a note or two and it'll come up as a text and you can use that to post later or create an outline for a book or an article trying to maximize the time that we have the downtime we have and all of us have our share whether it's traveling to and from work whether it's standing in line at the supermarket or the dry cleaner or waiting at a deposition or a hearing uh, so often we kind of just waste that time kind of fiddling with our phones and if we uh, leverage that time, you'd be surprised how much content you could produce on a day-to-day -day and a week-to-week -week basis. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that, that margin time that we all have that we kind of lose track of or, or don't utilize or leverage is, is a great time to uh, be producing content. How, are you, I, one follow-up question on that, Frank, is are you also consuming content? And from the content you consume, do you draw inspiration for the, your own content that you're creating? I do. I, I, I'm not only active on LinkedIn, I have a number of people I follow, and I'm also active on other social media platforms. I consume a lot of articles via my phone, and I have a lot of alerts regarding lots of issues that are coming up, not only legal, but business and politics, sports, pop culture. And I make a point to read at least one book a week, most of which are also on my phone. Uh, again, um, we have more downtime than we realize, and if you leverage that time, you'd be surprised how much you could read and how much you could write. Yeah, it's, you're right. I think we spend our time, we always find a way to fill the available time and then tell ourselves at the end of the day that we ran out of time, right? So it's a matter of perspective. Um, but I wanted to pick your brain on, on the books specifically, because those are bigger time commitments to both read and certainly to write. Um, I've written one book. It's, it was a fiction book, so probably not entirely applicable to our conversation. But my partner, Jay, here is a little more prolific than I. He's written a number of books. He has a book that he's finishing now that I got to read. And um, though I've never written a nonfiction thought leadership type of book, I know the time commitment that goes into thinking about what you're writing, outlining, writing, rewriting, working with editors. It's, it's a huge undertaking. And to those who convince themselves that they don't have time to even write an article, how is someone like that going to convince themselves or find or make the time to write a book? And I, I want to know how, how you were able to do it multiple times and how you might distinguish whether or not you, you, as you have an idea, as you're on your commute, you're using an app and you have an idea for content. And that could either be a one-off blog post. It could be a LinkedIn post. It could be a book. How do you distinguish what's what? And then how do you find the time to carve out to, to this massive undertaking of writing a book? Yeah, my process is pretty simple. First, 
I come up with an idea and I ask myself, is this a book size idea, an article size idea, a post or blog size idea, or just a throwaway sentence idea? And you kind of have to hold it up to the light and under the microscope and evaluate for yourself how much content, real content you can generate from that idea. And I try to avoid when I write doing a lot of anecdotes and war stories and a lot of quotes from other sources. Uh, I honestly believe that most nonfiction books that are two to 300 pages can be written between 10 and 20 pages. And most of it is kind of just additional information to justify the price tag. And so the first thought is, you know, is this idea large enough for a book? I've written books on associate training, on soup to nuts for the practice, on leadership, future of law. And if you have a big topic, I think viscerally you can say to yourself, well, this, this is a big enough topic. Um, you know, if you're just going to do sort of a survey on an area of law or if you're going to address, uh, let's say, how to train millennials or how to do strategic planning at a law firm, all those are big ideas that just inherently kind of lend themselves to book-sized publication. But the harder question is if you have sort of a smaller idea. Uh, again, you don't want to make a book when, where there isn't a book because you're going to end up spending a lot of time adding a lot of filler that nobody really wants to read, and you're going to create a lot, spend a lot of energy doing that. If you have a large idea, uh, the next thing to do is then to sort of brainstorm. You need to do it on a journal or a yellow pad or on the note app on your phone or on a Word document, and you literally write down every thought, idea that you can have on that topic. And no idea is too big or too small, no idea is too out there or too absurd. This is just for your purposes of brainstorming. You really just list them, and, and you spend maybe an hour or two coming up with every permutation of any idea that you have related to that overall theme. And once you have that, then what I do is I kind of take that and turn that into a very detailed table of contents where I organize all my thoughts, almost in the form of an outline, where every uh, section, every subsection, every title, every subtitle is going to have a line in this outline. My, in my table of contents, uh, if anybody wants to look at my books and find them on my LinkedIn profile, they're down in the section under publications, uh, they'll, they'll run 5, 10, 15 pages just on the table of contents. And if you just read the table of contents, you pretty much know what I'm trying to say because the descriptions are very straightforward and they kind of reveal what I'm trying to convey, my ideas and my thoughts. And once you have that, you know, absent a book that requires a lot of research, if it's something that's based on your own experience or it's based on things you've done personally or communications you've had with others, then it's really not that hard to write. At that point, you can pretty much, if you commit it to yourself and say, I'm going to write 500 words a day and you want to write a 60,000-word book, that's 120 days, basically. That's four months. Uh, if you write a thousand words a day, then that's 60 days. So you, what you should do is commit to a word count per day, every day. Uh, that's what I do. That's what I've always done. I generally write between a thousand and two thousand words a day, depending on what I'm writing. And that includes all my social media posts, and that's my commitment to myself. And it doesn't really take that long once you know exactly what you're going to write about. If you have a big idea and you've outlined the idea in detail you're pretty much off to the races and you'll be able to basically pour words onto the page at a very fast clip. I like that. I actually, I love that idea of committing to a word count per day because I'm guessing I'm not an attorney, but I'm guessing an attorney who writes a lot, that seems way less daunting to me than how am I going to find the time? You know, the, the, the commitment to, 
to writing a number of words seems what, almost easy, you know, by comparison. So, and Jay, you just recently gotten through this. So, and I know you, there's actually some allusion to this very thing in the book that you've written. So, you know, turning it back over to you, is it, do you commit to time per day or do you commit to word count per day or is it a combination? Yeah, I, I don't tie myself to a specific time or word count commitment, although I think that's those are great approaches. Um, in, in my case, I, I typically just commit to doing something every day. And so as long as I get, you know, some writing done, on, especially when I'm working on a book, um, then I feel like, you know, I've kind of accomplished what I needed to. And, and even if it's, you know, if I, if I even just get, it's, it's sort of like going to the gym. If you get your workout clothes on and you get in the car, you, even if you commit to five minutes of working out, you're probably going to work out for 30. And the same goes for writing. I feel like it's, it's about the daily commitment for me, but I know that word count and time, you know, time period of time, every writer has their own process. So I think Frank's is, is a great one to follow. Um, and, and you know, that, that thousand word daily, uh, word count commitment. I know, and Tom, you might remember this from the book draft I wrote, but you know John Grisham, when he was writing his first nonfiction or his first fiction novel, he committed to one page a day. So it's it's helpful to set those set those standards for yourself. Um, Frank, one one follow up question on the books: How have you found those to be beneficial uh, in terms of marketing your practice? I know I know oftentimes you're writing for attorneys themselves. Can you talk about that just from for maybe our listeners who think, why would I write a book? Um, how does that fit into marketing and business development of a legal practice? I think people perceive authors, especially those who have written and published books as experts. And ideally, if you have a certain practice area and you publish a book in that practice area, then others will perceive you as an expert in that practice area and will give you a close look when they're looking for an attorney or a firm uh, with legal needs in that area. Now, my books aren't practice area specific. They're more general. They're more about the their law firm management, law firm leadership, uh, just general practice, pre-trial and trial. And how I've been able to leverage that is that I kind of have, I've, I've created a, a perception uh, wh where people can see me as somebody that they can talk to about process, that I can basically take anything we do as lawyers, reduce it to a process, and then teach someone else how to pursue it, whether it's marketing, leadership, uh, how to try a case, how to take a deposition, and I think a lot of clients, especially larger corporate clients, are used to that. They're used to this management style of handling their issues, whether it's uh, purchase and sale, whether it's marketing, whether it's trying to uh, deal with inventory. They, they all have a sense that, well, there should be a process involved. We need to study what the best process is, apply it, and that's going to increase our profitability. And if they see attorneys who see the practice the same way they see their business, they're going to be more inclined to hire you to represent them and their business interests. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's shift gears for a moment and talk about LinkedIn, because I think that's something that, um, you know, most lawyers think they should be doing more on LinkedIn, but they don't necessarily know how to, how to use the platform all that well um, from a thought leadership standpoint. And, and you've, you've certainly got that figured out. You have tens of thousands of followers. Um, you, you post uh, sometimes several times a day on the platform, which is going to to many attorneys who think maybe, oh, I'll try to post something once a week. That's going to sound, um, you know, unusual. Um, but, and, and your posts are also, uh, I think if I could generalize, they're, they're relatively short and they are not necessarily linking to other content, but you're, you're sharing what I'll call nuggets of wisdom. And, 
and I think those those posts uh, rank very high on the um, I don't know I've come up with an acronym here the the IPW scale the insight per word scale um, because you're you're sharing lots of great advice and if and if you're up for it Frank I I pulled a few of the recent posts that you've shared and I thought maybe I could just read those briefly and then we can talk about or you maybe I'd, I'd love for you to expand upon the concept a little bit in a in a domain where we're not constrained by the LinkedIn 1300 uh, character limit on on status updates so. Um, one one nugget that I pulled was the following, and you wrote, the irony of playing it safe is that it is often creates unintended risks and consequences. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting concept and one in a risk-averse profession like the practice of law that, that may sound, um, you know, provocative to, to some listeners. Can you talk a little bit about that and just maybe what what how you think about, um, you know, risk-taking in terms of the practice of law and marketing a practice? Of course. Uh, I'm a Generation Xer. I'm 48. Uh, my dad was a meat packer and then butcher. My mom was a maid, and they played things very safe. I think that generation generally played things very safe. They would have a job. They would have that job for their entire career, and then they were retired, and they didn't want to rock the boat. And that's kind of – and their idea of providing was to work very hard and to make a lot of sacrifice and make sure that their kids, my, myself, uh, had what I needed to then, you know, proceed with my own career. The problem with that in our current environment, especially when it's changing so much, is that there's no longer any guarantee that any company that any of us work for, or any law firm any of us work for, will be around 10 years from now, five years from now, or even a year from now. And so sometimes we think playing it safe makes the most sense because that's how we were raised. Certainly, Generation Xers, I think, were raised somewhat, although we, I think most of our lives have been disrupted since the crash in 2008 and for a variety of other things, you know, 9-11 and so forth. And so playing it safe sometimes is actually the worst thing you can do. And that was sort of the gist of that message that we think, well, we're going to join a law firm and try to find the biggest and the largest law firm that pays us the largest salary. And we're going to keep our heads down in 10 years or 12 years. We're going to become partner and eventually we'll become equity partner. And we're just going to do what they tell us. And, that would be sort of the safe thing to do. And a lot of people who've done that have had a very rude awakening. And so it's very important for lawyers, even young lawyers, to be very entrepreneurial. And I think social media provides certain outlets for that, where each of us has a personal brand that's separate and apart from our firm or company brand. And we need to generate, foster, and develop it from day one, uh, because God forbid the firm we're at decides to let us go because they lose a major client or the firm shut, shut, shutters. Uh, we got to be able to land on our feet. And, and if we're playing it safe and all we're doing is just serving the firm and not ourselves, we're actually, be, we're actually taking a huge risk by doing that. So the, the paradox is that sometimes playing it safe is actually the worst thing to do and it's actually the most unsafe thing you can do. Yeah, that that's for sure. And that resonates a lot. I, when you were describing the, the lawyer who uh, a young lawyer who goes to the biggest firm, you know, that pays the most that they can, uh, or that pays the most in the market that that resonated a lot with me because that was kind of my route and and since then I'm I'm fortunate I feel fortunate for having kind of started taking more risks in my career and and it's it's all worked out pretty well but it's it's hard it's I I can I can appreciate that and I think that's great advice um, one more uh, Frank here that somewhat related but I think it gets to um, it gets to the root of an issue that that lawyers struggle with when we circle back to our, our focus today on thought leadership marketing, 
Um, and, and I'll read this quote from you now. You say, you write, I hated public speaking. I was scared to death of public speaking. So what did I do? I did it a lot. I'm not afraid of, afraid of it anymore. That's how fear works. You confront it over and over until the large monster with the fangs and claws shrivels up to the size of a small defen defenseless creature that you can swallow, squash with your shoe, or discard over your shoulder. So beyond the, uh, the excellent, uh, I think, descriptive writing there, um, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, just the, the, the fear that lawyers have about some of the tactics that go into, you know, building their personal brand and marketing and practice, which means they need to put themselves out there uh, in various ways. Public speaking is, is sort of a universal thing that many people struggle with. But I think the same goes for hitting publish on an article or, you know, starting a podcast or anything else. So can you just maybe expand upon that? Uh, I think that that really colorful uh, description of fear that you you described there. Of course, I, I think a lot of attorneys feel that if they're the best lawyers and they really focus on developing their skill set, that that's enough. And that certainly is part of it, that you're not going to keep business if you're not doing quality work. But in order to attract business, attract clients, you have to have a certain gravitas. You have to have confidence. You have to, have, and that's public speech obviously is very essential to that, being able to get in front of a crowd uh, without any notes and sort of hold their attention in your palm of your hand. That's a key skill set that trial lawyers need, that any lawyer needs. And that's something that attracts clients. It's, you know, again, you don't have to necessarily speak on a given subject matter, but if you're in front of a large crowd with potential clients and you're holding their attention and you look comfortable and everybody's listening and engaged and they're laughing at your jokes, then those clients will be like, that's, that's the attorney I want. I want him or her to represent me. And in order to get there, in order to start from a young lawyer that you're not really getting out much, you're kind of stuck behind your desk or you're shackled to your computer, you have to do things that are going to make you uncomfortable. Maybe join a local Toastmasters, possibly taking an improv class where you're in front of an audience and trying to be funny, uh, getting in front of your Rotary Club or teaching a Sunday school class or teaching at your local college or high school. Public speaking, you get better at it by doing it. And uh, there's an author who's fairly famous, Jordan Peterson, who's been who's written some books. I forget the title of his last book, but he, you know, he's a psychologist from Canada. He talks about getting over fear is the easiest thing you can do. You define the fear, you confront the fear, and you do it over and over again until you're no longer afraid of it. Um, and there's really no other way of approaching it. You know, you're afraid of heights. You do get you, you climb to the top of something. If you're afraid of public spaces, you make your force yourself out there. Now it's it's a question of degree. Your first public speech, speech isn't going to be in front of 500 people. Your first public speech may be to your peers at a lunch and learn at your office. Uh, your next one may be uh, to a small group at your church or synagogue. And each time you kind of push the envelope a little bit further and a little bit further. And yeah, you're going to, you're going to be nervous. You're going to be scared and it's going to be difficult. But until you do that and until you push those boundaries, you're never going to appreciate what your potential is. Uh, and not everybody's going to be a great public speaker. Maybe that's not your thing. But if it's fear that's holding you back, you'll never know until you confront it. That's great advice. Um, I wanted to switch gears, if you don't mind, Frank, just a little bit and talk about audience and maybe sticking within LinkedIn specifically. Um, what thought you put into and how you would maybe convey advice along those lines into your audience, you know, as an observer of the content, it appears, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it appears that a lot of the content is geared to other attorneys. 
Whereas I think instinctively an attorney might orient their content strategy around the audience of prospective clients. So first of all, I just want to validate that that is your strategy. And if so, or if not, you know, what, what, what thinking did you, did you undergo early on to say this, this is who I serve and this is the type of content I'm going to serve up so that I'm engaging in educating those audiences. Yeah. There's two questions there in terms of, lawyers as the audience, it's been my experience, I think it's the experience of many lawyers, that many of our cases don't come directly from business people, they come from other lawyers. And so if we can provide them something of value, there is some indebtedness for them to return the favor. Uh, when I was young, uh, this was before 9-11 and all the security we have in airports, uh, people could go and drop off and pick up family right at the gate of the, uh, of the plane. And at the time there was a lot of folks, you know, basically trying to get your money. They were panhandling, they were trying to get donations. I remember the Harry Krishnas being very popular. I think there was even a lawsuit involving them back in the 70s or 80s. But what they would do is that they would give you a flower or a small booklet and then hold their hand. And then you felt obligated to give them something in return, namely money. Uh, if they simply had asked you for it, you'd probably walk away. But now that they've actually given you something, you feel like you have to reach in your pocket and give them something in return. And LinkedIn is very similar to that, as is all social media sites. If you give something away of value and you're doing it consistently, there's going to be a subgroup or a subpopulation of those who are receiving it who are going to feel indebted to you. They're going to want to give something back to you. They may want to give you something back by asking you to speak in an event, inviting you to write something, making an introduction, or even referring you a case. And a lot of times these individuals are other lawyers. So that's what, so, so everybody talks about content, creating content, pushing out content. That's the reason we, that's one of the main reasons you do it. You do it to try to create the social contract with your recipient so that some of them feel like they want to return the favor and pay back to you. Now, in terms of my own development of my own platform, um, for most of my career, I've kind of written for young lawyers. Um, I think there's a huge need for mentoring and assisting and providing them an education and directing them as to how to become better lawyers and prove themselves in the profession. And so a lot of my comments are really directed to them, although it seems as if I get a lot of positive feedback from older lawyers and more experienced lawyers and, and not just lawyers, but other professionals in other areas and other sectors. And my advice to anybody who wants to get on LinkedIn, well, two bits. One, really explore the platform. Click on everything you can click on, go to every drop down and sub drop down and really study the platform and understand it. And this will take a couple of weeks to do because there's a lot there and LinkedIn is always adding new and new features, but really understand what's going on in the platform and then pick a general topic you're comfortable in. A lot of attorneys pick a substantive area, maybe cybersecurity, maybe non-competes, it may be, you know, negligent security, who knows what it is, but they'll pick a topic and then they'll consistently write about that topic. And what they're doing is they're laying the foundation as experts in that area and People who are interested in that area will start following them. They'll start seeing them as an expert. And when they have a case in that area in their geographic region, they will refer them a case. Now, obviously, if you're posting regularly, I post daily, I've been posting daily, including weekends and holidays since August of 2016, uh, a, a, a narrow section like that isn't going to work for me. And I kind of knew that going in. So my stuff is much more general. It has to do generally with the practice, like I said, leadership, marketing, uh, sales, practice development, uh, pre-trial and trial skills. I don't think I've ever posted in all those years a substantive comment 
on any substantive area of the law. I've, I've posted a lot on how to take a deposition, how to try a case, how to deal with clients, um, providing customer, better customer service. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, by the way, is easier to post on so I don't have to be constantly researching. It's just based on my own personal experiences and just my observations and communications with other lawyers and other professionals. So pick a topic that's broad that, that, that you're going to commit to. And before you start doing LinkedIn, and LinkedIn is never for everyone, be honest with yourself and say, will I still be posting regularly a year from now? Be honest with yourself. Look yourself in the eye, look yourself in the mirror. And if the answer is no, don't do it. You're just wasting your time that could be used to do something else. Yeah, Frank, that's, that's great LinkedIn advice for sure. Um, and we'll, let's close with one last question. Um, this, I mean, I think everything that you've said so far uh, is, is relevant to the audience that I'm going to ask you to speak to. But um, you, you mentioned that a lot of your advice is directed towards young lawyers. And I, I've noticed that. And that's been a, it's a big focus of my, my uh, consulting practice as well. I, I write a monthly column for the American Lawyer um, directed towards young lawyers. It was the subject of my last book as well. So I'm, I'm definitely thinking about these issues a lot. And I, I was curious, is, is there anything additional uh, you would have to say to, uh, you know, the young lawyers out there who are listening, who might be thinking about how to get started, you know, again, maybe laying a foundation for business development. Uh, they may not be quite in a position to be um, getting hired by clients just yet, but, but they certainly need to be taking the steps to move towards that. So any, any closing thoughts directed maybe to the young lawyers out there in terms of marketing and business development? Uh, yes, I think uh, marketing, business development, bringing in new work is based on relationships, personal relationships with people in positions of power that can refer to your case. And as a young lawyer, you probably know more people than you appreciate. Maybe some of them aren't in the position not to refer to your case, but you want to develop and grow those relationships. And I think the best piece of advice I can give them is to try to have coffee with one person a week. It costs like eight bucks. It's not that big of a deal. You can have it before the day starts so it doesn't interrupt uh, your billable hours, whatever other requirements you may have. And go through people you went to law school with, maybe opposing counsel or co-counsel. Perhaps it's a professor, but uh, maybe it's some business person of a family friend. But make a point to weekly meet someone for coffee for a couple of reasons. One, that's how you build relationships. And two, the more comfortable you get with, sort of in, with those sort of interactions, the easier it will be when you start going to conferences and you start getting involved in organizations. It'll just be easier to start conversations and maintain conversations and to continue and develop relationships. Thank you for that, Frank. And I think that's a great place to, to wrap the conversation up today. Um, before we sign off, um, I would encourage all of our listeners to, to follow Frank and his content on LinkedIn, uh, first off. But then where else uh, should people go, Frank, to, to learn more about you and check out your content? I mean, LinkedIn's probably the best place. If you go under publications under my profile, I think I'm up to like 12 or 13 books, most of which are free. Uh, they deal with every aspect of litigation, trial, running your firm, and I have a few more coming out, including one on LinkedIn for lawyers and getting published for lawyers, which will address all the nuances of LinkedIn for our profession. And also, as you mentioned earlier, how to get published, it kind of provides a detailed description of how you can write a book in 60 days. Fantastic. Well, Frank, it was a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for all of the, the great insights today and, and for joining us. Thank you so much.
Absolutely. And, and thanks everyone for listening and join us next week for another episode. See you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com. 